1: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's
2: quince.com slash upgrade. This is the Cork Today replay on C103.
3: As we welcome you along to the programme and yet another news, more photographs in the papers uh, today of people who went along to the Garth Brooks uh, concert. They looked, everyone who went looked like they had such uh, fun. Uh, Particularly if you're a Garth Brooks fan, if you are a super fan, I'm sure you absolutely enjoyed it. And there seemed to have been a lot of people from Cork who made the journey to uh, Dublin and grey skies and threats of rain failed to dampen what again was a party atmosphere last uh, night Uh, last night was night three and the end of the singer's first run for this week Uh, last night was the third night Um, He was there Friday, Saturday and uh, Sunday. He's got a five day rest period now and then he returns to the stadium to do it all over again next Friday and Saturday. If you went, I'm assuming you had a wonderful, wonderful time uh, at it. Um, I don't know whether you stayed or whether you went up and down because I know there was problems with people trying to get hotel accommodation and the people who did secure hotel accommodation, by all accounts, it really, really was expensive. That's why when the news broke on Saturday. That Aer Lingus had an IT uh, problem. And I was kind of monitoring it on social media because I could see there was reports of queuing outside Dublin Airport. And I thought, oh dear God, we're not back to where we were in the height of the summer. And then suddenly it turned out it was just affecting Aer Lingus flights. They ended up having to cancel 52 flights. And then, of course, came the announcement that the outbound flights were cancelled from two o'clock. But suddenly, with, I think within an hour, they cancelled the incoming flights as well. So it was causing huge, huge problems. But I was thinking for the people that were in Dublin were planning on going somewhere and that and particularly for people say who were going home. It was the end of a holiday. Uh, they were going to have to try and find accommodation. I was thinking, oh, Garth Brooks is in town. I don't know how lucky you're going to be in getting hotel accommodation. So I did see certainly people taking to social media, Twitter, in. In particular, complaining that they literally there wasn't any room at the inn on Saturday night in Dublin. So my my sympathies went out to people who certainly got stranded. But I know the news coming through this morning from Erlingas. They're saying they're expecting to operate full schedule. Uh, today after the systems outage re- resulted in all those flights being cancelled the airline said it is communicating directly with customers there was, was a bit of a problem uh, communicating directly with customers over the weekend that seemed to be the biggest complaint on social media was people saying we don't know what's happening we can't get through to anyone is there anyone from Aer Lingus listening to us is there any from Aer Lingus uh, talking to us so I, I'd say they will be dealing with a lot of customer complaints over the next uh, few days and now of course they have the head as thousands of passengers need to rearrange plans and need to rearrange uh, flights. And it seems it was a system outage which was caused by a break in connectivity in the services from a UK network provider. And normally when there's, you know, system outages like this, the IT guys get working on it, you know, and it's back up and running really, really quickly. But I think as sort of the hours went on, Erlinga started to realise we're not going to have this back up and running. But one of the main problems with the IT system going down was they had to manually check in people. And of course, gone are the days when you, you manually get checked into a flight. That's the way it used to be in the good old days. And we're so reliant now on computers. And it does. You kind of start thinking... This is this is what can happen when computers go wrong. If the computer says no or the lights go out and the computer isn't working, it can cause huge, huge problems. And there was a there'll be a lot of knock on effects of this. I mean, people trying to get connecting flights. I saw somebody, for example, talking about the fact that they were flying to Italy to go to a wedding the next day. The part of the bridal party were with them, the best man. and I think that one of the bridesmaids were there. So the knock on effect was the wedding ended up getting cancelled and they're trying to reschedule the wedding so you can just see it caused severe disruption to so so many uh, people but as I say Aer Lingus are now saying that full schedule uh, for today. Systems are back up and running. They also say that those who wish to apply for a refund or to change their travel plans can do so free of charge. Of course you can through their website and um, or you can go to their call uh, centre. It says they've increased the number of agents at their call centre. So I'm glad to hear that because there's nothing more frustrating than people trying to get through to someone and there's nobody answering the phone lines and obviously there will be compensation as well that people will be entitled to uh, claim back. So certainly not a happy, happy day for Aer Lingus last uh, Saturday. Oh eight one eight one zero three one zero three. John Paul's back as I say taking your calls. You can text our WhatsApp to oh eight six two one zero three one zero three. Later on in the programme Annelise Drussell, a nutritional therapist will be joining us. If you have a question for Annelise you can get that into us uh, throughout the morning and I'll put it on your behalf to Annelise later on. Over the last uh, couple of weeks when people are talking about the budget and much anticipation now what are we about two weeks away uh, from the budget and people you know everybody I I think it's been the most anticipated budget ever with people waiting to see what's going to be included and how, they're going to, how the government are going to help with things like the cost of living and the high cost of electricity. But over the last number of weeks, every now and again I'll get a call or a text in from people saying what about inheritance uh, tax? Do the government need to look at inheritance tax and up the amount that a child can inherit from a mother and or uh, a father? For those people who are looking for the limits and the rates for inheritance tax to be increase. You're not going to be too pleased to hear that in the papers today there should be a substantial reduction in the amount of money that parents can leave to their children tax free and this suggestion is coming from a government appointed commission on taxation. It is one of their recommendations. Now the a lot of the papers are saying that that proposal would prove highly controversial because inheritance tax issues are emotional and any move to make changes tends to generate Generate an enormous backlash. Now, last November, the Finance Minister, Pascal Donoghue, was forced to do what was seen at the time as an embarrassing U turn on a budget measure from last year to try to tax what was called soft loans. And that, that was where parents were gifting their children money towards their house deposits and their their term as soft loans and there was a proposal that they should be taxed so there was a u-turn done on that but now the commission of taxation and welfare is set to recommend that the tax free threshold for inheritance tax should come down and not just come down by a few thousand they want to see them radically reduced over a number of years a big reduction in the tax free threshold will be particularly problematic to people who live in very large houses people who live, say, for example, in certain parts of uh, Dublin, where you don't even need to have a very substantial house, but the house could be worth a million plus. Now, inheritance tax falls under capital acquisition tax rules at the moment. A child can inherit €335 Euro from their parents before they then have to start paying tax, and they pay tax at 33% on everything above 335000 So, if somebody... From a leafy suburb in Dublin dies and leaves this house that's worth a million to their son or to their daughter, then the son or daughter can get 335,000 of it, but the rest, which is probably about three quarters of it, is going to be taxed at 33%. But if you go back to 2009, at that time, the figure that a son or daughter could inherit was well over half a million. It was 542,000. And at that time, anything over that half a million was taxed at a lower rate at the time. The rate was 22%. Uh, so they changed the rules of that. They lowered the amount somebody can inherit and they put up the amount of tax the person would have to pay. Now, the commission doesn't put a figure on what the tax threshold should be other than saying the reduction in the threshold should be, in inverted commas, substantial. The Commission's report is due to be published by Pascal Dunhu on Wednesday. And this proposal, they're all saying, is going to be one of the most uh, uh, contentious. Now, remember, it's just a proposal. It's not to say the government will do uh, this. But normally, you know, the Commission on Taxation, they normally would seriously look at any recommendation they would make. The Commission is not calling for any of the recommendations to be in this month's budget, but rather they're saying that these recommendations should be implemented. Now they're, they're saying between 10 and uh, 15 years. The tax free threshold is 32,500. If you are leaving something to a close relative, and I'm assuming that would be maybe a niece or a nephew or a grandchild. And if it's a more distant relative, like a second or a third cousin, then the most that that person can inherit without paying tax is 16,250. The recommendation is that the group A threshold, that's the one where the children can inherit 335,000, should come nearer to those two Uh, Bans instead the 32,000 and the 16,000 which would be a substantial reduction from 335,000 and it would mean anyone who was inheriting a house would really be caught with this and would end up having to pay substantial amounts of tax. Now in the past... The government have, has defended the size of the tax-free threshold for children. It's always argued that a family home is the main item making up the bulk of most people's estate. And a lower threshold, there therefore, would force children inheriting the house from a parent. They literally would have to sell the house to pay off the tax liability unless they had a huge sum of money sitting in their own bank account, which is highly unlikely to be able to pay off the tax. Uh, and, of course, added to that, this couldn't come at a worse time because we've had this relentless house price inflation and that has led to increasing numbers of families particularly in some parts of the country IE Dublin facing much bigger inheritance bills because the homes they are inheriting even sometimes they can be just be a modest one to be the same in some parts of cork city as well they're worth far in excess of that tax free threshold of 335,000 they're also by the way in this report with their recommendations advocating uh, a modest charge if a parent gifts a child more than €3,000 a year. What is known as the small gift exception under capital acquisitions uh, tax, that means a parent can give up to €3,000 a year to a, a child without them having to pay the 33%. And if both parents are alive, each can give uh, 3000 to a son or a daughter. But anything over 3000 that uh, or also uh, is, um, amounts over 3000 count also off a child's lifetime Tax free threshold of 335,000. It's argued that this will help tackle tax avoidance and ensure revenue has a better record of wealth transfers, according to this report. Now, this commission is on taxation and on welfare, so they do make recommendations on welfare as well. And just on the welfare side, the commission advises that child benefit should be kept as is and not taxed. There have been talks about possibly taxing child benefit. They're saying, no, that wouldn't be the way to go. They do want to see an increase in the child benefit rates. But what's interesting here is they want to see an increase in Child benefit rates for low-income households on a tiered basis. Now, I don't know how that could be put in in practice because child benefit is one of those universal payments. Whether you're a pauper or a prince, everybody receives the same amount of money, depending on the number of children they have every single month. The, the Commission on Taxation is saying we need to look at that and put more money, aim more money towards low-income families. It's also calling... For, you know, the working family payment, the FIS, Family Income Supplement, they're also saying that that should should be available to all households and not just those with children at the moment, because it's called the family payment. It's You have to have children in in the household. They're saying that needs to be looked at and it needs to be paid to all low income families. And it's to deal with, uh, they're saying one of the reasons for it would be it will deal with what they call labour market distortions uh, and try to... That so that there's no incentives for people taking up paid work. And how often have we heard about that? People saying they'd be better off on the dole because of the money they're going to get from a low income, uh, from a low income job. So if there was some kind of a a family, a working family payment that's there for families with children, if that was also paid to families without uh, children or to individuals without uh, children, it might incentivize them to give up. The dole and go out to work. Oh eight one eight one zero three one zero three. John Paul's taking your calls. You can text or WhatsApp. Oh eight six two. One hundred and three, one hundred and three.
2: Court today on C one hundred and three
4: with Corrigan Insurances Macroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group, Promoter, home, business, farm, life, and health insurance. C M I G dot ie.
3: Last week on the program, I spoke with West Cork Lord Deputy Christopher O'Sullivan, who was very concerned about the threat from avian flu in our wild bird population, with a number of cases now confirmed here in Munster. To find out more about bird flu, I am joined by Mark. Dr. Mark Jessup, who is a lecturer in zoology zoology at University College Cork. Good morning to you, Mark.
1: Good morning, Patricia. Thanks for having me on. Well,
3: you're very welcome to the programme. Okay, at this stage, how many confirmed cases of avian influenza do we have here in Cork and our near neighbours in Kerry?
1: So the confirmed cases are actually still quite low because the labs are still testing a lot of suspected cases. Um, The issue is that the number of birds that we're finding dead and dying, washing up on beaches, um, is in the hundreds to to probably low thousands at this stage. And there's a very, very strong um, probability that those are going to test positive for avian influenza. Now, you can't actually test all of them, um, but we do have the highly pathogenic strain of avian influenza affecting our seabirds here. It has been confirmed in a number of species, including gannets and puffins, Um, but the numbers that have actually confirmed and tested are still very, very low. You're you're talking probably less than 10 at this stage.
3: And is it the gannet population that you reckon is going to be most affected?
1: So this particular strain of the avian influenza seems to be disproportionately affecting species like gannets and terns and gulls and um, uh, bonksies, uh, skewers. Um, So in the UK, there have been very, very large die-offs of gannets, terns um, and and some other species. Um, And we're we're worried that because we hold such large populations of those in Ireland that they're going to be quite highly affected here as well.
3: And this particular flu, uh, Mark, is highly contagious amongst the bird population?
1: It is. So this is a strain of the, the, the normal bird flu that we get that sort of originated from intensive poultry farming quite a number of years ago. And up until this stage, seabird populations seem to have been unaffected by this. But this year, they're being hit very, very hard by it. So once they do con- you know, contract this, this influenza, the mortality is very high in, in the seabirds. And because they nest in such large aggregations, you know, thousands and thousands of them within a very small area in one colony, effectively sitting on poo-covered rocks, essentially, where they are, the, the transmission is very
3: high. Yeah, we unfortunately can't get them to socially uh, to social distance. Uh, unfortunately. No, unfortunately, yeah. Um, and and how worried are you if uh, about an outbreak of this flu, and what would it mean to our wild bird population, Mark?
1: So we're actually very very concerned about this one. The the UK populations that got affected earlier than the populations here. You know, back in sort of June, they were being affected there, and there were reports of up to fifty percent die off in some of those seabird populations. Now, seabird populations generally are doing very, very poorly. Globally, they're the most threatened group of birds um, around the world, and they're being impacted by a number of things like habitat destruction and invasive alien predators, um, climate change, fisheries um, impacts through through bycatch. So most populations are actually declining, um, and this on top of it can be quite a a large hit. Um, Part of the problem is that seabirds mature quite late. Something like a gannet wouldn't start breeding until it's about four years old. Um, And they can live well above 20, 25 years. So it takes quite a long time for them to, to, I guess, rejuvenate those populations. They'll only tend to raise one chick per year. And those chicks do have quite high mortality as they learn to feed for themselves as well. So it's probably going to take in the region of decades for the populations to recover from an impact like this.
3: Ah, goodness. Any risk to humans? The risk to humans is
1: actually quite low. Um, I think in the entirety of the time that we've had avian influenza, there have only been something like 900 cases worldwide where it's jumped to humans um, in the past nearly 20 years. Um, So that the risk to humans is considered quite low. But that said, when it has jumped into humans, the mortality in those humans has been quite high, around about 50%. Um, so the best advice is if you do see a sick or injured bird of any sort, please just keep your distance. You know, we don't want another COVID here. Um, you know, the, the avian influenza has jumped into other mammal species. It has been confirmed in seals, um, and in bottlenose dolphins and in porpoises in various locations around the world. So it can be transmitted. The risk, as I said, is considered quite low that The the jumping into humans has been very, very rare given the amount of time that we spend around intensive poultry farming and things, Um, but it's not a zero risk the best thing to do is just avoid any of those sick and injured birds if you see them.
3: Yeah and I know we had some calls in last week particularly from people in, in West Cork who were quite distressed you know out for a walk and seeing a dead or a dying bird uh, on the beach and they all did the right thing no, nobody touched uh, touched them uh, but they were all then getting on to the Department of Agriculture. It's important that you report any sightings.
1: It is incredibly important so the Department of Agriculture has the, the mammoth task of trying to sort of follow this and, and look at how it's progressing through the populations. And they can't do that without information from the public. So if people do see that, you can go online and there is a bird flu tracker app um, on the Department of Agriculture's um, website. And they've also got some phone numbers. I don't think I've actually made a, a note of them. I, I
3: have them here, some hot yeah, no. the hotline numbers. Yeah, if people want to get pen and paper, I'll give them out at the end yeah, of, of uh, Mark's they uh, Mark's, can, Mark's They can interview. contact that. And yeah. the other
1: important bit is if you're walking out on a beach with a dog, um, please keep the dog on a lead because if the dogs go around and rummage around in bits of dead seabird, um, they could then transmit it onto other populations in other areas, particularly if those dogs then visit something like a farm, um, which would be quite detrimental.
3: Yeah, that's you're leading nicely into my next question. Do poultry farmers need to be concerned?
1: So poultry farming was kind of all the, I guess, the, the outdoor Poultry was, was brought inside into barns. That's why a while ago the, the egg cartons had sort of you know raised in barns rather than free range. Um, but the Department of Agriculture did a risk assessment and sort of considered that they can go back outside again. There is always a risk that the avian flu will, will crop up in poultry farming. And so farmers know in the area that you know they, they need to be vigilant for any signs of avian flu. And if there are, they report them all to the Department of Agriculture as well. You know, they know their job and they know the, the signs to look out for.
3: OK, I've just spotted a text in uh, from a listener saying, hi, Patricia, can you please ask, ask your expert? Our expert is Dr. Mark uh, Jessup uh, from UCC's zoology, zoology department. Um, I keep a few hens. Uh, is it safe to leave them out, says one of our listeners? And there'll be a lot of our listeners will have some hens at, at home. It's become quite popular.
1: Yeah, it should be. So at the moment, this you know influenza outbreak tends to be going around a lot of seabird colonies. So unless your hens might be interacting in some way with seabirds, you know, they're probably at very, very little risk of of contracting avian influenza. Um, If you do start to see aberrant behaviour, you know, the the birds, when they're infected, will generally die within about 48 hours of being infected. It's as quick as that. Very, very quickly.
3: It's as quick as that, 48 hours.
1: Yeah, so it does result in a lot of things like internal bleeding and um, organ failure inside the birds. And it it can be quite quick. So around about 48 hours from, from infection, they can end up dying.
3: OK, but it's 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 OK at the moment to leave the hens potter around yeah. the garden. OK.
1: Now, one of the risks at the moment is things like um, rooks and gulls might be kind of scavenging on some of the dead carcasses of dead seabirds and contracting the influenza there. And if those gulls then go into areas with chickens that might become an issue, and there might be an onward route for for transmission there. But generally speaking, you wouldn't tend to find gulls in, in people's gardens with yeah. with yeah. with
3: chugs. Yeah, and actually, the that listener is back saying, "I don't live near near the sea. I'm out in the countryside, so obviously there's no gulls yeah. uh, around, so very, you should very, be
1: very, okay. very low risk
3: there." Okay. And somebody else says, "Could you ask Doctor Mark, is there any chance of a vaccine for the bird population? Oh, hard to administer, I imagine."
1: Yeah, that's the problem. It, it's like I do work on gannets, and it's incredibly difficult to catch 20 of them um, to, to sort of do the studies that we do. So, trying to catch 100, you know, 100,000 of them is, is nigh on impossible. Um, you know, to, to administer a vaccine, there is some indications that a vaccine would be effective to stop the spread within those populations, but the, the logistics of being able to try and vaccinate wild populations of seabirds that don't want to be caught and can't really be corralled anywhere is, is very difficult.
3: Actually, I spotted your Twitter handle is at GannetGuy. You're obviously a huge fan of this particular bird.
1: I am indeed. They're, they're a spectacular bird and I do quite a lot of research on them. So we do things like um, putting small tracking devices on the birds to find where they go at sea, how they feed, how deep they dive, how they interact with fisheries, how they might be impacted by things like wind farms. So we'll do a lot of work on their distribution and abundance. So, yeah, they're they're a spectacular species to work on.
3: Oh, it's a, so this deeply saddens you to think that we could lose so many of them.
1: It does indeed. So we're probably not going to know until next year, next breeding season, when all the birds return to their colonies to to actually assess the scale of the impact here. But um, the sheer number of birds that we're seeing dead at sea and washing up on beaches indicates that our populations are going to be very, very heavily hit. So I'm slightly dreading next year when we go to the colony and find that it's half empty. But I'm I'm trying to keep a positive outlook here and and hope that they're not going to be as um, impacted as we
3: fear. Well, Hopefully, hopefully. Listen, Mark, it was a real pleasure to speak to you. Thank you for that. And thanks for joining us on the programme. Not a problem good morning to you bye bye that is Dr Mark Jessup lecturer in zoology at University College Cork 0818 103 103 John Paul's taking your calls you can text her WhatsApp 0862 103 103
2: Cork today on C103 with Corrigan
4: Insurances McCroom now part of McCarthy Insurance Group they don't just talk the talk they walk the walk cmig.ie
3: the number of children between 8 and 12 years of age with online social accounts has risen to 87%. That's according to a major survey of Irish primary school children to take a look at the study conducted by Cyber Safe Kids. I'm joined by their CEO and that's Alex Cooney. Good morning to you, Alex. Good morning. And you're very welcome to the programme. Firstly, isn't there age limits on the majority of social media accounts that you've got to be at least 13 years of age and over?
5: You're absolutely right. And in fact, uh, so this study was of four and a half thousand primary school ch- aged children, so eight to 12 year olds, so all of whom are under the minimum age requirement of all of the popular uh, social media and instant mes- messaging apps that they're signed up to. So the top seven apps that we identified are, all have at least 13 as the minimum age restriction
3: but it didn't stop 87% uh, signing up. Am I right in saying that the majority of them own their own smart device, either a mobile phone or some kind of a a tablet that has internet connectivity?
5: Yes, 95% of the children that we surveyed. So both those numbers, the 95% is an increase of 2% on last year's figure. So we look at this year on year and we've been looking at it over the last seven years. Uh, So we saw an increase there and also in the social media figure it was 84% last year. It's now 87%. So I know these these increases sound small, but I think it, what it points to is that it's growing, not, not uh, getting smaller.
3: OK, you know, there's nothing wrong with children using the Internet and it can be very informative and, and very educational. But it's just the other things that young people can have access to while online. Are parents controlling the time and the access that their t- children have while on these devices?
5: Actually, you're raising a number of points there which are interesting and I want to pick up on. So you're absolutely right that there is a lot of benefit to the online world and there are lots of opportunities there for children. So this discussion or the discussion that we're trying to encourage is not about saying we must stop children ever accessing the Internet. That's not at all what we're saying. What we're saying is that we need to work a lot harder to prepare them for the online world it you know that if you think of something else like like teaching your child to ride a bike or cross the road safely there is a process that we go through you know that that it takes a bit of time it takes years to get them to a point where you feel like you can let them go and be independent and and make those decisions themselves about you know is it safe to cross now or you know am I, am I safe to to cycle across the road now with my bicycle, you know we're we're preparing our kids and we want them to have that independence but we know that we have to 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 work at it and and to get them to a place where we can hopefully trust that we've done enough to uh, to do to to prepare them but also mitigate it against the risks and I think we need to be thinking a lot more along those lines as regards our children being online. So it should be a process. There should be preparation. We need to equip them through conversations, through ground rules, through support, through parental controls, um, and through education in schools as well. So that's the one side of it. You know, Those are the things that we can be doing to prepare kids. But we also need to be demanding that these online spaces are safer for children, that they're safer places, because too often they are you know, essentially built for adults, with adults in mind, not with children, not with children's safety in mind, and that makes them vulnerable in those online spaces.
3: You spoke to the children about uh, bullying, Alex. What did they say about bullying online?
5: Yeah, so actually we don't use the word bullying. What we do is we break it down into a number of negative experiences that children might encounter. So 28% of children that we surveyed said that they had had one or more of these experiences. experiences. So it's things like being left out of a chat group, or being sent mean messages, or someone posting something mean about you online. So 28% of the kids told us that that they'd had this experience over the last year. Um, And then when we asked a follow-up question, which was, well, then what did you do? Most children happily did tell a trusted adult, which is a really important strategy. Um, But actually quite a high proportion of children, so a third, 33% of them, told us Told us so. 33% of those children that had, had had a negative experience like that online told us they kept it to themselves, which is really concerning because we do want children to have that trusted adult that they can reach out to that can help stop a potentially really harmful situation
3: becoming bigger. And I just can't get over what we're talking about children as young as eight.
5: Yeah. And, and you know, we don't survey younger than that. So it's not that none of this is happening in younger age groups as well. Yeah. It, it's simply that we start serving, we start doing our education program from third class up. So we don't we don't survey younger kids. So, I, I yeah, but I, I can I well imagine that you will always find a proportion of younger children who have their own devices. Some of them may even have social media accounts, you know, like and I do think we need to be questioning ourselves a lot more, you know, is is my child ready for you know this responsibility? Am I ready as a parent or carer for the responsibility that comes with a child being online? I think we need to just stop and ask ourselves these questions a lot more.
3: And another one that worried me in, in your report was the uh, adult games that some of the children have access to, uh, boys in particular. You'd be really worried about that.
5: So yeah, as you say, we we so we asked this question. So online gaming is hugely popular with this age group. So I think 81% of the children overall told us that they played some sort of online game, and there are lots of great games. To you know, to be fair, and my own children play online games, but I think again, it's around what kind of games they're playing. And 19% of the children overall told us that they were playing, they had played, over the last year a game with an adult rating, with a with an 18 uh, adult rating of 18. When you break that figure down by gender, 8% of the girls told us that they played a a game with this rating. 31%, so almost a third of all the boys that we surveyed, told us that they had played an over-18s game. And really the issue here is the kind of content that they could encounter. You know, these are clearly adult games. They have sexual content. They have violent content. And again, I just think we need to be questioning, do we really want our kids to be exposed to this sort of content? before they are of an age that they can really understand and process it and put it into context because, you know, it can then be problematic if, if they don't have that developmental readiness to do so.
3: And did you ask the children about how long that they, they spend on some of these devices? Is there, are the parents saying, you know, you can have 15 minutes or you can have a half an hour, but then you've got to switch off your device? Is, is it that kind of control going on?
5: So interestingly, we used to ask this question um, and we we'd often find there was always a proportion of kids that would say that they spent four or more hours online. But actually, we, uh, a day, sorry. And again, it would have been primary school children. But we actually stopped asking it about three years ago because we realized, you know, and, and, and obviously with the onset of the pandemic, I think this was then highlighted further. You know, it's really not so much necessarily about the amount of time that they're spending online. Because certainly during COVID, we would have seen children spending way more time, all of us actually, spending way more time online. Well,
3: we had to encourage our kids to go online in order to be schooled.
5: Right, yeah. right, to be schooled, exactly. But I think there is, it's really about the quality of what they're doing, you know, and yeah. making sure that there is a balance in that. So we talk about a lot the, the online-offline balance and have we got that right? Are we, you know, switching off our devices and, and making sure we're getting outside and playing with our friends you know, play, you know, football with our friends out in the field rather than just, you know, through our devices. So we want to encourage that healthy online offline balance, but we also need to encourage that balance online. So, you know, it's being mixed up a bit, you know, there's a bit of chat with friends, there may be a bit of time for schoolwork, there may be an online class that like a, it could be a dance class or an exercise class or, a da- you know, dance video, there's loads of different things, you could be a creator, you could be creating content. Um, you know, so there's lots of positive ways that kids can be spending time online. And it doesn't all have to be passive and sedentary, you know, but I do think it's keeping an eye on that and that they're not just sitting endlessly scrolling through social media and um, comparing themselves to everyone else or endlessly playing one game over and over and over. Those, that isn't healthy. And I do think we need to really look at that. But this is where we ask that that parents really engage with what their kids are doing online and do have those Limits and boundaries, because we do need to help kids to self-regulate. They're, they're not, you know, going to know that automatically. So, setting limits and encourage kids, encouraging kids to think about those limits. You know, I've had you know, enough of this, or I need to put this down, or I need to go and have a break, or whatever it is, because you know, we don't want it to creep into problematic use. You know, and that's before you even get to addiction.
3: But parents themselves have a role. How often have you been out, uh, particularly in a, in a restaurant and watch a table where you see, you know, mother and father, both with their heads buried in a mobile phone and, and children with their own tablets? You know, you can't say to, to children you're not allowed to be on your phone or on your tablet when the parents themselves are doing it. Parents really have to step up to the mark on this one.
5: I think we do, as, as parents, um, need to think about that and, and need to think about the message that we are giving to our kids. And, you know, if we're saying to kids, you, you must learn to put it down, you mustn't be endlessly scrolling, we do need to think about um, how much we're doing it ourselves. But I also think, again, just to point the, the finger back at the, the online services at the companies themselves, we have to understand we're also being really manipulated, you know, that it is hard for adults sometimes mm-hmm. to put put those devices down, to switch that off, to stop scrolling through whatever it is, Instagram or TikTok, you know, it is deliberately designed to hold our attention for as long as possible and to make it so challenging to put it down. And I think the more we talk about that and the more we understand that, the more that we challenge that model, um, I th- you know, the, the better, because it is it is so hard. And, you know, I, I think we need to understand this is not just a simple, you know, human interaction with technology. It's, it's more
3: complicated than that. Okay, listen. Well done. Another great report from Cyber Safe Kids, um, Alex. Thank you for that, and thank you for joining us. Thank you. Good morning, to you.
4: You are listening to Cork Today on replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed
3: delighted to be the bearer of some good news for people in the Dunmanway area. My thanks to Councillor Declan Hurley for getting this news into me that the gym in Dunmanway swimming pool complex will reopen to the public on the 14th of September which is this Wednesday and also the school swimming classes will recommence from the 4th of October but so many people have been really put out by these by the the gym having been closed. God, is it been closed now? Is it nearly six months at this stage it's been closed? They closed just because it was to be used as emergency accommodation for Ukrainian refugees, even though I'm open to correction, but I don't think it was ever used for housing, emergency housing for Ukrainian refugees. But in the meantime, they had to be prepared in case there was a need for it to be used. And because of that, the actual gym part of the swimming pool uh, complex had to be closed. And as I say, it discommoded so many people. So Declan tells me that from next Wednesday, the gym reopens and then it'll be open Monday to Friday. It opens at half seven in the morning, Saturday and Sundays at nine. So certainly some good news for people in Dunmanway because there wasn't I'd say a week went by over the last number of months where somebody will be saying any update on what's happening with the gym in Dunmanway so glad to report that and somebody else wants me to give a shout out and to wish the senior footballers the best of luck this coming Saturday in the premier, premier senior football championship quarterfinal against Castlehaven in Porky Creef at 7 tickets are on sale at the Cork GAA website and the Mallow GAA would really appreciate the support from people in Mallow and the wider areas so good luck to everyone and that is happening next uh, Saturday. 0818103103 John Paul taking your calls. I want to go to the phone lines where uh, John O'Donovan joins me. Uh, good morning to you, John. Morning,
6: Patricia. We haven't,
3: we haven't spoken in quite some time now. You come to us this morning. This is to do with reports. There is a report out from the College of Physicians. And mm-hmm. they are recommending that... The sale of cigarettes, the age should be raised. It's 18 at the moment. It should go to 21 and this is to, in a bid to try to win back. Unfortunately lost momentum in this country. Uh, we, we had been doing well, particularly with young people not taking up smoking, but unfortunately that's been reversed. It's going the other way, particularly for teenage boys. You think that's a good move. Bring the age limit up to 21.
6: I think it's a fantastic idea because look, we all know the devastation that Long-term, the cigarettes can do. The jury is well-in, and at you no, know, this stage no professional. So, I think it's a fantastic proposal. I think it definitely deserves the ear of the government. And we were one of the very, we were one of the actually the first in Europe to bring in the smoking ban outside of New York. And um, we saw how successful that was, even though a lot of people said it wouldn't take off. But it did, and it, in turn, it stopped a lot of people from smoking because they couldn't smoke socially. They had to go out in the rain outside take some and A lot of people I know who did actually gave up the cigarettes. So it, it was it was a great idea, and I think at this stage, you no, know, it needs to be seriously looked at to raise raise the age uh, to twenty one. And if I had my way, I would also do like America, re- raise the age of drinking to 21 as well. But that's concentrated on the cigarettes. Okay. So you're going to get the argument, Patricia, that or well, if the, this happens you now, like I mean, you know, I mean, is there is it right that people at 18 years of age that you can vote and you can get uh, your license to drive cars and all that? This is a, a health issue going forward into the future. I hate cigarettes. I've seen people, and mine, of the woods, relations, friends, suffer chronic. Uh, breathing conditions don't the as all brought home by cigarettes. Did you ever smoke, John? I did when I was about 17 or 18 just to be cool, you know, but thank God I never got into yeah, it. Yeah, you I never got stopped. you never got
3: completely no. addi- addicted to it. And I mean, all the I, evidence is there that the younger is. a person takes up smoking, the more chance they'll have of being addicted to life. Yeah.
6: Now, I think there's a golden opportunity here, as I said, to bring this in, right? Make it the law. Right, but also, I would stretch it out even more, Patricia. I think there's a golden opportunity, not only on this, but the government. Let's see that we were the first in Europe to bring in the smoking ban. Let's set a date, we'll say, by next September 2023, that cigarettes will be no longer for sale in this country. And again, you're going to get people saying... What, what it's not a so
3: no, ban
6: them completely? Ban them completely. We've got an opportunity. We could set the record here. We've done it for the smoking ban. Let's declare war on cigarettes. Let's set it there 12 months from now that no more cigarettes. I know no people are going to say, what about the black market? People will be buying them. But look, not everyone will buy them on the black market because we are know, Patricia, a lot of that stuff that comes in anyway. the cheap rubbish of cigarettes. Nobody knows what's in them. They're actually even more dangerous. So I think a lot of people will be very suspect about actually buying black market cigarettes. And in turn, I think going forward, if we did do, take this brave decision... I think it would save thousands
3: upon thousands of lives going forward. It, it, it absolutely would, yes. but I don't know if prohibition works or not. You do realise the amount that that would cost the exchequer in lost revenue?
6: Well, well, you see, this is the other side of it, like, I mean, I mean, uh, why, why, why can't we even consider this, like, I mean, and if there is a loss of the exchequer, well, look at the cost at the moment for smoking-related illnesses and the amount of money that's spent and, and by the HSE trying to look after people. that, And another thing that's not covered uh, either, like which people want to is the amount of amputations that happens right around the country through smoking-related illnesses, through, through circulation problems. I know a few people this happened to My own mother had a very bad ulcer on her leg position for years. They found it very hard to cure it. And eventually it it, did heal up. But the the nurse told her, she said, if you were a smoker, you would have lost that leg. Oh, my goodness. And people don't realize that. And they they kill, they
3: kill. I mean, the, 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 the statistics are there. Tobacco products will kill one in every two people probably yeah, two, yeah, two, two yeah. people smoking uh, it will kill one and we we actually wouldn't be the first to, to go to the under 21 part of it we mm-hmm. wouldn't be the first to do that and I was reading before I came on air this morning I was reading some stats that were out about other countries America states in America have been the first to bring in this it's called tobacco 21 where you've got to be 21 years of age in order mm-hmm. to buy uh, tobacco and in California for, uh, for example the smoking rate amongst 15 to 18 18 year olds fell by 10% when they introduced yeah. it and in Massachusetts they reckoned that they got the smoking rate for 18, 15 to 18 year olds. They reckon they halved it by introducing this over 21s. because yeah. the theory is that 15 to 18 year olds will know somebody at the age of 18 who will be able to go in and buy cigarettes but 15 to 18 year olds won't know many people 21 plus to go in and buy them the cigarettes. This this, and, yeah. and
6: another thing which I'm uncomfortable with as well is the young people taking up the vaping because that's the, the gateway to actually taking up cigarette smoking. And I didn't realize that actually recently that a 10-year-old can actually walk into a vape shop and you don't have to have any idea of anything and they'll sell you the vape.
3: Well we, I don't know if you were listening to us on Friday I had uh, Professor Luke Clancy who was who joined us actually he was attending a conference in Barcelona but he felt so strongly about the issue of vaping that he wanted to, wanted to join me because there was research out showing the increase in the amount of young people that are vaping a lot yep. of it linked with, funnily enough 55% of the young people who take up vaping their parents were smokers so they saw their parents smoking didn't want to smoke themselves but des- decided to do vaping and then obviously you know, there's peer pressure, everybody else yep. is, is doing it. But that thing of trying to ban under 18s from vaping would you believe i was looking online when i knew you were coming on and i was going to be talking about it mm-hmm. it under the public health bill to prohibit the sale of vapes to under 18s was back in 2019 it's still never gone in it gets held up every time this legislation somebody yeah. will hold it up and somebody will hold it up it's it's crazy why why it hasn't been uh, introduced so you're right yeah there's no age restriction on somebody going in buying an e-cigarette.
6: That's, that's, that's absolutely completely bizarre. I mean, that, you know, a 10-year-old can walk into any vape shop, any village, any town, any city in this country, you know, and won't be asked Number one, I mean, the, a 10-year-old shouldn't be asked for it because a 10-year-old shouldn't get served in the first place. Yeah. And it, but and I think we've a golden opportunity, you know, like you know, like, let, let, let's go for this you now. Like, let's take it to 21. But I would take it a step further set a date in the future, 12 months or now, whatever, and let's declare on cigarettes. Let's forget about the, the the last of the exchequer, that money will be found somewhere else or whatever, but let's declare on cigarettes.
3: Okay, somebody says, tell that John who's on air at the moment, leave the fags uh, alone. Uh, It'll be easier said than done. Someone else says, all for pushing the age up to 21 in order to buy uh, tobacco but banning them all together. Come on, John. Now, I'm assuming you're going to, you would get a very negative reaction from people who are addicted to tobacco and to our think smoking. The thing is,
6: Patricia, these are the same people who said, like, I mean, it was going to be Armageddon when the smoking ban came in. It was never going to work with people on with you. They were on every radio station. There was publicans on. They were saying, I mean, this is going to cause devastation. People would rebel. The guards would be going into public, There would be murder on the streets. But it didn't happen. The people rolled in behind us. And I reckon you mm-hmm. have to lead by example. If there was a date set in the future that, look, Cigarettes are going to be made illegal in Ireland. I think
3: the people have come around. Well, a lot of people would have no choice if they they couldn't get uh, the cigarettes. Marvin says he doesn't smoke. He was, he's a next smoker, but he hasn't smoked uh, in years. But he also says the cost of alcohol and what alcohol uh, does to people uh, there's a huge cost to the health uh, service but similar to smoking if you try to ban alcohol if you try to ban cigarettes the amount of money into the exchequer and remember particularly cigarettes were well, the same with alcohol we tax it it's taxed to the hills in this country that's why when people go abroad they try to bring in as many cigarettes as they can because they don't have the same level of, of taxation so there would be a knock on effect to the exchequer but I know your point how many mm-hmm. lives would it save?
6: Well, this is the thing, Patricia. Like I mean, and the, the suffering that's involved there. Like I mean, the agony that goes with this. You know, I mean, it's it's terrible to see people there and they're gasping for breath. Like I mean, I know many people. And they wish to God they never started. Like, so, look, let's have a serious conversation about
3: this. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, you're right. Let's have the conversation, OK? And I can see uh, Sheila says, Trish, totally agree with every word that John has said. And somebody else says that man, John, is spot on. We just need to ban them for once and for all. OK, John, listen, thank you for that. Thank you. And thanks for, uh, thanks for joining us. That is uh, John and Jonathan, uh, joining us from the city. 0818103103 Just a couple of other uh, texts coming in on issues that we dealt with in the last. Hour we were talking about the avian flu and the effect that it's going to have firstly on our wild bird population, but then uh, the, the the worry would be to our poultry farmers as well. And Professor. Mark Jessop, who joined me, is a big lover of gannets in particular. He's been studying them for quite a number of years. Somebody says, hi, Patricia. Uh, the gannet is our biggest sea bird in Ireland. It has lovely features. It's a beautiful bird to watch diving for fish, said uh, Mike, who is a, me- a Bantry member of Birdwatch Ireland. And obviously you're keeping a very close eye on the gannet and the other wild birds because unfortunately so many of them now are, are turning up dead, are uh, dying. Hi Patricia, this is on the inheritance tax when I mentioned that the this commission, the Commission on Taxation and welfare recommended to the government that they need to take a look at inheritance tax and the amount of money that a son or daughter can inherit on the death of a parent. Uh, Lister says, Patricia, what money these gov- this, this government and other governments have waited while learning lessons where they don't seem to have learned very much along the way? And now they want our children to pay for these lessons and the mistakes they made by grabbing their inheritance Somebody certainly not in favor of what the Commission on taxation is uh, proposing hi Patricia is it not bad enough that young people are unable to get on the property ladder, but this now taxation on com- Commission on taxation now think tax, the daylights out of property and our inheritance so that the our generation of young people will never aspire to owning anything. Do they realise that they are making the socioeconomic divides even larger between the haves and the have-nots? Not, have there will no longer be a generation of middle class. You'll either have the very wealthy or the very poor. They may as well bring back the penal days of the landlord. It sounds to me like communism at its very best says a whatsapper to 86 103, 103 on the internet and the use of the internet and particularly social media and a lot of the apps that are out there to connect people together and the things like TikTok where people are posting up uh, videos etc and just shocking to hear from CyberSafe kids that children as young as 8, the 8 to 12 year olds who by law shouldn't be on it by the rules of the social media companies they say you've got to be 13 plus but of course the survey and the research is there showing that younger people are going onto these social media platforms. Somebody says Trisha the internet is brilliant if used in the right way but you should only be using it for one or two hours a day says Michael we all need to restrain our use of the internet but whatever with the internet particularly our use of the social media platforms that's where people can just spend hours and hours and hours of scrolling and then you put your phone down or your tablet down and you think what have I done there the last two hours absolutely nothing but it can be and it just appear to be very very addictive I mentioned actually it's back on the commission on taxation and welfare they also said that the government should leave the children's allowance as it is is their recommendation but They do say that there should be an increase in child benefit rates for low income households on a tiered uh, basis. And I'm assuming now rereading that again, it's is it would be impossible to have separate children's allowance Depending on your income, uh, maybe what they are leaning towards is, is an increase in the rates uh, paid to people, who say, were unemployed, and that they get a, an extra amount for their their children. Maybe that's what they're they're looking for. But John says, Patricia, on children's allowance, look at all the people on huge incomes, and they're all getting children's allowance. Didn't we at one stage have a TD who would have been on a huge income getting children's allowance for his eight children? It's some jokes as John, I'm trying to in my head work out which TD had eight children. But yes, TDs are entitled to it. Uh, Executives who are CEOs of large corporations, people who are on huge sums of uh, money. Uh, If you have a child in this country, it's a universal payment, as as I said when I mentioned it earlier. Whether you're a pauper or a prince, if you have a child, you are entitled to child benefit. 0818 103 103. John Paul taking your calls. You can text WhatsApp 0862 103 103. C103 jobs. Carneys of Mallow, they're currently recruiting school bus drivers. It's for immediate start in the Mallow and Newmarket areas. Candidates need to have a full D or D1 license, up to date CPC. Call 022 22467 part-time accounts person is wanted in the Sham Valley Moor Cadowery area. Call Michelle 087 65 Longerville House in Mallow have a vacancy for a part-time head waiter, mostly Fridays to Sundays. Also a part-time bookkeeper slash administrator. That's 20 to 25 hours per week. Email your CV please to info at and an electronics technician is wanted for testing and debugging. That's in the carriage 2 Hill area. Email jerry at superlum.ie. You'll find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now. Just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. This is C103. Court
2: today on C103.
4: With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Promoter, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. Cmig.ie. MIG.ie.
3: Now, Besber, which has been so much in the news of late, was one of this country's biggest mother and baby homes for over 70 years. Earlier this year... A really powerful book was published which outlines the stories of three of the women over three different decades who all found themselves walking through the large red door of that grand country mansion. To chat about her book, Besber, three women, three decades, three stories of courage. I'm joined by Deirdre Finity, who is an award-winning journalist with the BBC. Good morning to you, Deirdre. Good morning Patricia, how are you? I'm very well and you're very welcome uh, to the programme. Well done by the way on on this book. It, it's it's a real page turner and it is just it, the, the these testimonies from these women I mean they just, they really really must uh, be heard and you're right in putting it in the title. They are stories full of courage. Did you find this book hard to write? I did find it hard to
7: write because listening to the interviews with the absolutely amazing and wonderful women who who contributed to the book
6: um
7: and conducting them you know it was it, it's obviously very emotional and traumatic and it details the long-term impact that you know this institution had on their lives so yes of course it was difficult to listen to of course it was difficult to write but I also found it a huge privilege to get to know the three amazing women in the book, um, get to know how not only how Vesper had affected them, but also how you know they themselves had overcome such obstacles in their life. And I think what comes really comes through in the book is actually the tremendous strength that all three of them have, and also the amazing generosity that they had to you know give their stories a book so that other people can read about their stories and you know learn learn from them in years to come so yes it was difficult but it was also an enormous privilege and something I'll always remember I think for the rest of my life
3: And all three women, Joan, Terry and uh, Deirdre as you say really wanted their stories uh, told. D- do you feel in some ways it was healing for them? Um,
7: It's difficult for me to say probably at this
0: When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Point,
7: but I know that all three at different points in their lives certainly found speaking out about their experiences, cathartic. And one of the women in the book actually describes speaking about her experiences as if like a weight was lifted off her chest. Um, And another woman, the second woman in the book, actually, Terry, she speaks out because she wants younger generations to learn about her experiences. And as does the third woman in the book, Deirdre Wadding, who is a former teacher. So, you know, she really wants people to learn from her experiences, you know, as an educator. So, um I just, you know, again, oh, I'm always kind of blown away even when I could go back and read the book at uh, the generosity that they've shown. And um, yeah, I think it's different for every survivor. I mean, some survivors would find it hard to speak about their experiences. Other survivors have spoken to me. They didn't want their experiences in the book, but they wanted to inform my research. So I'm just hugely grateful to everybody who spoke to me and took part. Um, in the research for the book, because I learned every, uh, I learned something new from every single conversation that I have, and I think what's really clear is that there's a huge generosity amongst the survivor community and um, a huge willingness to educate um, younger generations, and I think that's really heartening to see, Patricia.
3: Yeah, and uh, Catherine Corliss who I've interviewed. Uh too many times to count uh, on this uh, programme for her amazing work. I thought she summed it up when she said that your book should be included in the school curriculum and, and I really do uh, agree with Catherine I mean this is a story and um, what these women went through must never be uh, forgotten forgotten, uh, forgotten about it, it really okay just now, and not one of these women ended up in even though one was in the 60s one was in the 70s and Paula mm-hmm. was in, in the 80s none of them went there freely
7: no, they would all say that none of them went there freely, that they felt that they had no other choice. Even in the 80s, Deirdre, the third woman in the book who was there in 1981, Deirdre Wadding, who is an absolutely wonderful woman, she, yeah, she felt that she had no other choice. She was an 18 year old. She was in her first year of teacher training college, and she felt that this was basically the only option for her. No other path was presented to her. And, um, yeah, she would openly say that, yes, her 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 son was placed for adoption, but it wasn't what she wanted and it wasn't her choice, even in the 80s.
3: And Terry, who had her uh, baby in the 70s, 1973, she was put on a plane in England and flown to Cork.
7: So this is something that people don't really know about. Um, well, I think they know a bit more about it now, but certainly it wasn't something that was, widely talked about or widely researched until perhaps a few years ago. So what was happening was that an informal sort of repatriation scheme was operating between Catholic agencies in the UK and Catholic agencies in Ireland. And um, what would happen is that, you know, Irish women who um, sought the help of particular Catholic agencies in the UK, you know, found themselves, hundreds of them found themselves repatriated back to Ireland, to mother and baby institutions there. And, you know, that went on right on until the early 70s, um, you know, so it affected Terry. Um, she thinks she is perhaps one of the last Irish women that this happened to, you know, because she had made the choice to go to the UK because she felt things would be easier for her there if she was un, um, unmarried and about to have a baby. But what happened was, you know, she she, she she wasn't given the choice to stay in the UK and she was she was repatriated back to Vespera in Cork and
3: Incredible. Um, just Justin yeah. was just in, in a no choice suitcase or aunt of the suitcase packed and that was it. There was a, a priest exactly. and two nuns get on the plane. I mean, even for her to be on the plane and to say to a nearest Where are we going? You know, you're just thinking, and this was in, you know, 1973 years. Goodness, nobody stood up and said, you don't know what plane, you don't know where you're going. It's just, it's incredible. And then once they arrived in Besborough, this notion of changing their Christian name, was that done, was the theory behind that that they were, the nuns were trying to protect the girl's identity? So the way
7: people have described it to me is, Yeah, it it comes across in, in Deirdre's story, I think quite clearly, the third woman in the book. So it's explained to her at that point in the 80s that it might be easier for her if she took a different name. So I suppose the whole idea around it was to conceal the original identity. You know, in the 70s and in the 60s, it wasn't presented in maybe such a polite way that it might be better for you. They were just kind of, the names were just changed, but you know, what Deirdre described in the 1980s, and I think she described this very well, she said it was almost like um, a splitting of her identity. She entered in to best one person, and then she came out another because she was called a different name, and she'd had this really um, traumatic experience, Um, and she felt kind of, because she was called a different name, she sort of dissociated dissociated from the experience in her mind, and it took her a long time to kind of come to terms with that um, and I think that's something that she, she talks about so eloquently in the book because she's such an eloquent person.
3: Yeah I think it was even uh, Joan who's, who's you know with her strong Cork accent saying to somebody her new, her new name and I'm from Limerick and she said okay. with her broad Cork accent like you know, the other girl looking at her going yeah yeah you are oh. and a common thread the family shame, uh, Deirdre, and and there will be a younger generation who will find this hard to, to hard yeah. to understand. I mean, it was all about shame. What will the neighbours think?
7: Mm-hmm. Shame. Um, yes. What will other people think? Um, this notion of sort of upholding respectability, um, that women and girls have to behave a certain way, and. If they transgressed from that, then, you know, this was something that would affect the wider family. And for that reason, they needed to be sent away. I mean, that's the theme that comes out really clearly in all three stories and the way also the women affected sort of internalized the shame and took the shame upon themselves, which is so unfair, really. Um, but But it was something that it took all three of them a long time to kind of get through and come to terms with.
3: And over the years i've I've read so much and so many different books and interviewed so many people about mother and baby homes. The one thing I learned from your book that I wasn't aware of was in Joan's story Joan breastfed her baby mm-hmm. i yeah. I really didn't think that that, 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 that that my goodness the cruelty of that
7: um yes, yeah, I mean. The horrend- yes, absolutely. I mean, the cruelty of that and for, you know, mother and child to be separated. You know, I, I think, you know, most, most people would kind of find this appalling. But yes, that's something that came across clearly in the book and uh, something she describes very vividly. Yes. And um, yes, I know other people have described different experiences of bottle feeding, um, but, and Terry described not being able to breastfeed and being allowed to breastfeed and wanting to. So, yeah, it's another way in which just, kind of. But knowing people,
3: these babies yeah. are going to be taken away yeah, from it, just it just seemed an extra layer of cruelty. Of and cruelty. It's, it's Joan in the '60s also talks about, you know, it's such a because I I adopted, especially his child, so I found this part really offensive. Um, unadoptable, uh, children, children from mixed race are are children with disabilities, and they were unadoptable. Yes, just to
7: think that that language was used, you know, it's. It just shows you know a lack of empathy and a real sort of appalling attitude, I think, towards um anybody who was in any way different. but yeah that's that's something she described very clearly. um and yes, yeah, I think if you look at the kind of the history section in my book, you'll see that you know that thread continues on in some of the official documents that we could that were quoted in the commission of investigation too. And yeah, I mean, just to think that this is the attitude we had towards um, existence in our country is, 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 is really, really shocking to think. And yeah. then
3: even though it's, you know, it's a story, uh, Joan's story was 67, Terry's was 73, Deirdre's was uh, was 81. Uh, th- there's a lot of common after when they tried to get on with their lives. For example, all of them ended up with broken relationships and, and marriages uh, ending.
7: Yes, I think somebody who talks about that probably the most openly was the third woman in the book, Deirdre, and um, she kind of was very open. She said that she thought that the experience of losing her um, her child, and she might on to have a second child, actually that she lost to adoption, um, directly led to the breakdown of you know two two marriages. So, um, and that's something that not just some of the women in the book told me, but other women who whose experiences aren't directly referenced in the book, have also spoken about how it affected marriages and relationships. Now, that wouldn't be the case, obviously, for everybody. There's been others who've had, you know, very supportive partners um, over the years and, you know, very strong marriages. But, you know, it certainly has affected a number of women who had gone through the mother and baby home system, for
3: sure. And of course, you also like outlining in the book, the, the great lengths all three mothers went uh, to try to one day find uh, their boys. And it was interesting. They all had boys. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, yeah, but, you know, and I, as I was reading it, I was thinking, I don't know if you've seen Darrow Breen's latest comedy show where he talks about his own journey and trying to trace his birth, yeah. uh, uh, birth mother. Um hopefully that will all change now with the, the access to birth certs?
7: I think amongst the survivor community and, and adopt um, the community of adopted people, there there is, you know, a real desire for this to change. Uh, we have seen some movements in, uh, in that regard, you know, with kind of the latest legislation. Uh, but I think also amongst the community there's a little bit of scepticism given how long it has taken for legislation to be changed so I think it's sort of a a, a wait and see but certainly you know 20 it's it's definitely much it's it's probably easier in some respects to search now than it was decades ago so I'm glad to see some kind of positive positive in that direction Um, but yeah um, yeah I mean I think if you look at the first woman her experience you know she described having to search for her son for 16 years and you know if you compare it to other countries you know that that's really not what would happen in the UK or in other countries it would be a lot quicker so to think that somebody had to do that very recently is, is really
3: shocking. shocking. Yeah, And at the same yeah. time she discovered when she did finally get to meet um, her, her son he had been searching for her for nine years and yeah. how many times have we seen that where um, a an adopted child has gone mm-hmm. in search of their mother. Uh, only discovered too late; they had, you know, it's they've passed away. Only to discover that they had been looking for them as well. It's just, you know, and the cruelty of what went on in Besbor. I mean, you really touch on that in 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 the book as well. It's it's just it's a powerful, powerful uh, read. And with so much talk lately about you know Besbor and what's going to happen to Besbor, uh, the site. What do you think the three ladies would like? to see done with Besborough,
7: I think so this is something, the the three women in my book, um, none of their children died in Bessborough. So what they were very clear on is that they thought that it was the mothers and the family members of the children who died who should be consulted on this. And their view was... Um, you know, what the mothers and the family members want is, is what should be done. And I know there's a variety of different conversations happening around Cork about what should happen. Um, and there's kind of a lot of issues to be resolved yet. And I'm sure it's something you've spoken about on your programme a
3: number of times, Patricia. Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you can never get, and I don't think whatever happens, it's never going to be the right match for everybody. It's
7: certainly very complicated. I know there's a variety of different views. Absolutely.
3: Well, listen, your book is fantastic. Well done uh, to you on it, uh, Deirdre. And uh, thank you so much for taking time out to talk to us today. Uh,
7: Thanks very much, Patricia, for um, reading the book and supporting it.
3: No problem. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. That is uh, Dear Definity. The book is called Besber, Three Women, Three Decades, Three Stories of Courage. As I say, I 100% agree with Catherine Corliss. This is a book that should be included in the school uh, curriculum and it is published by uh, Hatchet Books.
2: Court today on C103 with Corrigan
4: Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. Cmig.ie. I-E.
3: As we all know, we are among the top team drinkers in the world. So I feel it's really important for us to know that according to a new study, not all tea bags are biodegradable. To discuss the findings, I'm joined from UCC by the study lead, and that's Dr. Elisa Mateus-Cardenas. Good morning to you, Elisa. Good morning. You're very welcome to the programme. I suppose start firstly by explaining what you did for this study. You actually looked at eight different brands of tea bags
8: yes i did so basically the whole idea of um, the project was that uh, not many people know but uh, most tea bags actually have plastics in them and that's um, as a sealant so when you look at the tea bag, on the edges like rougher, that's because there is plastic there that's kind of been melted to keep the tea inside um so yeah i went to the supermarket i bought a few different uh, tea brands and i bought them in um, in a garden soil in cork city and then I waited up to um a whole year and then I went back, dug the, the tea bags back, took them into the lab um to look at what happened to the plastics. Uh because so some tea bags are being uh now switched from a normal plastic to a bioplastic. So I was interested in looking at what would happen with those bioplastics as
3: well. And what did you discover?
8: So, uh what I found is that the common tea bag uh, that has a conventional plastic uh fragmented into fragments which are called microplastics um from three weeks to twelve months. Then there is other type of tea bag now uh that is made of a bio based plastic so it's a bioplastic um, and it's purely made of that and The thing is that what we found is that after after the twelve months in the soil that tea bag had not biodegraded. Uh, it was actually still intact. It didn't even fragment into into microplastics. After uh, 12 which, months? Yeah, which was not expected. And then there was a, another type of tea, of tea bags as well, which were made completely of cellulose, which is not a plastic, it's a molecular like organic material. Or it had a very small amount of bioplastic. And those did biodegrade between three weeks to three months.
3: But when if you look on the packaging for the tea bags, I'm, yeah. ass, I'm assuming that are they, are, they, they say they're biodegradable.
8: Yeah, they do. And I must say that now uh, both um, major Irish tea brands have switched to biodegradable tea bags. And those, these uh, will biodegrade uh, in your compost or in the garden. But there is another type because it's made up mainly made of cellulose. So it's not made of like it doesn't have a lot of plastic, it's mostly cellulose and that just like paper degrades very fast. Um but then there is the other type of tea bag that is more shiny, it's, it looks different. If you see you know the type of tea bag that it is, it's, sometimes it's even more expensive.
3: I was just going to say they're what I call the posher tea. Exactly. Yeah, yeah I call yeah. it
8: the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that one is not biodegrade. Uh, and that one also on the on the packaging it says biodegradable. Um, but it does not really, biodegrade. it's just made of plant material, but it doesn't biodegrade,
3: unfortunately. So are you suggesting we go back to what we, what our mothers and our grandmothers did, <laughs> use loose tea leaves?
8: Well, I mean, that's probably the more sustainable way of drinking tea. Um, loose leaf tea, uh, I know it's more convenient to use tea bags, and like I said, uh, you can not find biodegradable tea bags in the market, but if you want to be sustainable and not have any contact with the, like plastics in your tea, the better way and healthier way I suppose to be to use loose leaf tea
3: and are you also saying for those of us who continue to use the tea bags, be careful about don't put them into your compost bin
8: um well like if if they are completely biodegradable, they should go on your compost bin, but if you're, if you're, you're unsure sure, yeah. yeah, they should just maybe you i mean you can open the tea bag, throw the tea into your compost. And put the actual tea bag in in the normal bin.
0: Yeah,
3: yeah. yeah. Okay, this is good research, uh, Elisa. Uh, Well done. And there's nothing like a cup of tea from loose tea leaves. In a china teacup. Yeah. It's the only way to drink tea. Listen, mm-hmm. pleasure talking to you, Lisa. Thank you for that. Thank you. And uh, for thanks you. for joining us. That is uh, Dr. Elisa Mateus Cardenas. She's with the UCC School of Biological Earth and Environmental Science.
4: You're listening to Cork Today on replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed.
3: Middle of all the texts, I see a text and somebody said Patricia missed the name of the book that you were talking about in the last hour. Uh, the book is called Besber Three Women, Three Decades, Three Stories of Courage, and it's by Deirdre Finnerty. So I imagine if you go into a bookshop and say you're looking for Deirdre Finnerty's book on besber, if they don't already have it in, they certainly will be able to get it in for you. It is well, well worth the, the read. And it's just, it's, you know, the fact that it's back in the 60s, back in the 70s, and then it's when you get to the last story of Deirdre's story back in the 80s, you think, God, oh, that's not that long ago. Um, There's a common thread running through all of them. The shame they all felt how their families and other families would support them and every single one of the three women none of them none of them wanted to give their babies up for adoption but they just really literally had no choice and uh, no, no support so it's a sad it's a great read but it's a sad read as well uh, Besber is by Dear Definity. 0818 103 103. now some of your calls and comments coming in on issues we've been discussing and issues we haven't been discussing Aidan and Douglas was on to us this morning to say he was collecting a friend of his from what he calls the cataract uh, bus this is Deputy Michael Collins who organises the bus to go to Belfast the Belfaster blind bus isn't it more commonly uh, referred to uh, Aidan said that he met Councillor Ben Dalton O'Sullivan and De- uh, and Deputy Mike Collins and he said he'd never met either of them before but he said if every politician did this or forced to have the health system like this what a better country we would all be living in uh, Aidan said while he was waiting last night for the bus he, he st- stood or watching the others getting off the bus. And he said, in one way, it was extremely sad to see elderly people being helped off a bus after a long long journey back from Belfast and the fact that they had to travel to Belfast had to overnight in Belfast for an operation but he said on the other side then he was so happy for the people because they were thrilled that they had finally been uh, sorted out but he was just saying it just you know it was contrasted awful to see elderly people having to get on a bus and actually on the front page of the examiner today there is a piece about the number of people booked for Inpatient daycare cataract procedures. Because remember, cataract procedure is you're in and out in a day. It isn't holding up a hospital bed or anything, but it's actually on the uh, increase. Most of the hospitals, according to Neil Michael in Today's Examiner, most of the hospitals that carry out the procedures of cataracts say there are now more people waiting than there was three months ago. is that shocking? So that's the waiting list for cataract operations is actually growing. And then actually inside in the examiner, there's a full one-page spread all about that bus. It was the reason it's getting so much publicity for Michael Collins and the rest of the gang that organised the bus was last Saturday's bus was the 100th bus to carry passengers from the south to have their, car- their cataract procedures done in the... Uh, Kingsbridge Private Hospital. This is the one where you do the cross border treatment. You've got to pay up front, but then you can claim the money back from the HSE. But hard to believe a hundred buses later and another full bus went to Belfast. Actually we're going to have Michael, funny enough, we've asked Michael, Deputy Michael Collins, if he can join us on the programme tomorrow. And uh, he says he can, because I'm interested to hear his take on the fact that the waiting lists are getting longer here in the south i mean will he be how many more will he be running hundreds of buses in order to because you're left with the particularly when it comes to your sight you're left with the going blind and it's the very nature of cataract operations it's older people and for older people who want to live as independently as possible they need to have their vision they need to have their sight and to be faced with that of knowing you're going blind while sitting on a hospital waiting list and now to hear that the waiting lists are even getting longer. I can well understand why somebody will take that. What is an arduous journey? I mean, the very fact of even thinking about going on a bus out of West Cork, going all the way to Belfast, even if you were going on a up to a concert or you were going away you know to some social event you'd even be thinking oh the bus journey alone but you know that you're going up to have a procedure done is just it's it's tough it's tough and they're very brave and courageous people who do it and I know most of them travel with a family member as well and I think Aidan summed it up well while it's kind of sad to think of these elderly people getting on these buses it's a very happy affair as well because they're so thrilled I could imagine the excitement when that bus came back to Cork yesterday how thrilled they all were that the operation was over and They're okay, and that they can now get on with their lives. Thank you for your call, Aidan. And as I say, we will have Deputy Michael Collins on the programme tomorrow. He's going to be joining us. We spoke about cigarettes earlier on and we had John Donovan from the city saying do we need to have a serious look at cigarette smoking in this country and have we come to a time where we should just draw a line in the sand, pick a date and say from whatever date say the 1st of January 2025 cigarettes will be banned in this country you will no longer be able to purchase them and would that be the impetus that people would need to finally give up the cigarettes if they couldn't actually purchase them. Carmela Mitchiston says I actually agree with uh, John Uh, certainly around the piece about increasing the age to buy cigarettes go from 18 to 20 we are lucky that this generation coming up are into health and fitness but a few still fall into the category of purchasing cigarettes if we make it harder for them it certainly will be a success for the future generation but the reason that John joined us uh, Carmel I hate to burst your bubble is the fact that there has been an uptake in the amount of teenage boys taking up cigarette smoking it had been on the way down for the last number of years but suddenly now in the last year or two more young boys teenage boys are starting to smoke and that's one of the reasons the report from the College Royal College of Physicians are calling for the age of cigarettes to go from 18 to 21 in the hope that it might deter some of the next generation coming up and might stop them uh, smoking Thank you for your call Donna in Bandon says I don't agree with a complete ban like John is suggesting we should all be allowed to make choices while I agree with increasing the age of buying cigarettes banning them I feel would be wrong we should all be free and have free choice to do what we uh, to do what we want. I don't think any country in the world has gone into Uh, banning them I mean certainly Australia is a country that absolutely hates cigarettes and they make it as difficult as possible for people they've just taxed it they've made it I think the last time I checked it was about 45 dollars for a packet of cigarettes in Australia and their theory is make them so expensive that people won't be able to afford to buy them and obviously if they're very expensive it makes it harder for young people to take up the habit oh eight one eight one oh three one oh three on what I started the programme with and the inheritance tax and we could be looking at Having, if you are lucky enough to inherit something into the future, and particularly if you inherit from a mother or a father, at the moment you can inherit up to three hundred and fifty-five thousand without having to pay uh, tax, according to the Commission on Taxation. They want that reduced, and they, they, I mean, they seriously want it reduced. If they're talking about going to the lower thresholds, which is thirty-two thousand, if you're a close relative, is what you can inherit, and then you would have to pay tax after that, or sixteen thousand for a, dif- a distant relative. The Commission on Taxation is saying, bring it down to levels like that which would make it really really hard for some families and Una in Blarney has picked on something and I think she's right on inheritance tax she said if they do reduce it it will be particularly hard for an only child grand if there's two three or more children and the house gets left to everybody then it gets divided and nobody ends up paying tax but if it's an only child with an inheritance they would really really get caught they would for sure Oh eight one eight one zero three one zero three. we spoke about t Bags and it turns out that not all tea bags are biodegradable and that we shouldn't be putting them into our compost uh, bin. Somebody by text says, Oh my God. I suppose now uh, we're all going to have to buy the dearer tea bags. Such a load of cod wallop. What next? I'd say now there will be that will be the least of our worries. We've uh, we've enough with all of the bills and keeping our house warm and putting food on the table for the for winter. I love my tea, by the way. Now, in fairness to Dr. Alicia, that's not that's exactly what she's not saying. Actually, she's saying the opposite. She's saying if you opt to go for the posher tea bags, they're the ones that definitely don't biodegrade. What she has actually suggested from an environmental point of view is to go back and you go back to the old fashioned way and use the loose tea leaves. And I'm open to correction, but I'm sure it's cheaper. Is it not cheaper to use loose tea leaves than to use tea bags? I don't know what the difference. I'd have to take a look at the difference in price because I can't tell you the last time I bought loose tea leaves. But there is nothing nicer than a cup of tea that's made with loose tea leaves. But we're just all gone. We want the easy option of the tea bag in, dunk it in, dunk it out into the composting bin, which now we shouldn't be doing, according to uh, Dr. Alicia. Well, you, What she's now suggesting is if you're unsure whether your tea bag is going to biodegrade or, or not, rip it open, take the tea out of it, which is pretty messy because it's all like powder, isn't it? And then toss the actual bag itself in for landfill. But she's not suggesting that you pay more or go for more expensive brand of tea. What she is actually suggesting is could save you money. Take a look at going for some of uh, loose tea bags. Oh eight one eight one zero three one zero three. Martin in West Cork says, "Patricia, capitalism is bringing everyone to their knees financially and economically." And emotionally, my apologies, there are other ways to basically produce food and feed everyone, educate people, organize people to have better lives, healthy from a health point of view and from a social point of view. You don't have to be Einstein to be so smart or so clever to figure that out. Politicians who are four to five levels of intelligence above me, says Martin, don't put yourself down, Martin. They should come up with a solution rather than rabbiting on about talking about stuff in a different talking shop. Not happy with the way the politicians are handling this uh, country. And John says, Patricia, there's a Red Sea poll uh, out today of 17 to 25 year old age group. 70% of that age group are seriously considering emigrating. This tells you all you need to know about the Ireland of 2022. The government have totally failed this generation, says uh, John. Actually, that particular Red Sea poll was conducted on behalf of the National Youth Council of Ireland. And I know I was talking to John Paul in the office. We've, we're trying to get them to join us tomorrow on the programme as well to talk about that. But that was when I saw, I kind of shuddered when I saw that in the papers this morning when I saw that Red Sea poll because, you know, we've had it with previous generations who had no choice but to emigrate. I mean, particularly when you think back in the the recession back in the 80s when there wasn't jobs, we had people who literally went through the education system. Many of our brightest who got third level education literally came out of the universities and got onto planes and boats and emigrated. Now over the years, some have come back, but not all have come back. And isn't there a dreadful fear because we've got to really really educated population and our young people in particular are highly educated and only last week when we were talking about the leaving certs the results the week before and then last Friday we were talking about the CAO offers that were out and you know looking at the percentage of young people who got their first choice and were going on to college and you know Even since the 80s, we've got way more young people going on to third level education. We have a great education system. So we put them through this wonderful education system. What for another country to benefit I mean, the 17 to 25 year olds, that age group, particularly the the, say the 21, 22, 23 year olds will probably come out with a third level uh, degree, which they'd be taking with them when they get on the plane to go to another country. So, yeah. We need to do something to keep our young people in this uh, country 100%. John, thanks for your WhatsApp to 0862. 103,
2: 103. The C103 Cork Diary. With
4: Cork County Council, where communities and businesses all across the county can get the support they need at corkcoco.ie.
3: And can we wish the very best of luck to Pat Spratt and Father Eugene Baker, who we spoke with on this programme, both from Butterfant. They're attempting to climb the seven highest peaks of Munster. They're raising funds for the Irish community air ambulance. Their first climb, they're underway, is uh, Galtimore and they got underway at 11am this morning hopefully the rain is holding off for them uh, tomorrow tuesday they are will be in the gert Gillan upper car park at 11. wednesday's attempt is mount brandon And on and on they go. They're going to do all of the climbs across this week. We wish them the best of luck. Donnerale Active Retirement Group, they are meeting um, this morning in the Presentation Pastoral Centre, if anybody wants to pop in, while Fomoy Toastmasters, they're beginning their 53rd season tomorrow, Tuesday, in the Youth Centre in Fomoy. Meeting begins at 8.15. They'll meet every second Tuesday until May of next year. Two new members and guests, all welcome to come along. And the first monthly script of the season will take place in Tanner Park, Ballanconic Rugby Club, tomorrow, Tuesday, with music, song, and dance, and the usual cup of tea or coffee, along with a raffle on the night. Everyone looking forward to meeting up after such a long, long break.
2: Court today on C103 with Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part
4: of McCarthy Insurance Group, for motor, home, business, farm, life, and health insurance. CMIG.ie
3: just to say there's been I would say a handful of texts that I need to check with John Paul um, to see if he gets any calls uh, or not uh, to do with the coverage of the Queen Elizabeth's deaths since last Thursday and the coverage over the weekend and the coverage that's going to be on across this week and indeed next Monday when the funeral takes place and people are giving out about it and people are giving out about the monarch and people are giving out about the pomp and ceremony can I just say if if it's upsetting you that much don't watch it I mean there was wall to wall coverage if you wanted to watch it particularly the BBC had huge amount of programmes obviously already in the can and ready to go because with the 96 Year old monarch, Uh, they knew that you know her, she wasn't going to live forever. So they had a lot of the programs all ready to go. But I just I can't understand why people are getting so upset about it. Don't watch it. It's not you know Queen Elizabeth was not the queen of uh, Ireland. There's so many television channels out there at the moment in streaming services. It's not the situation where once upon a time we were one channel land and we had nothing else uh, to watch. So just switch over and you know watch something else instead Oh eight one eight one zero three one zero three. I can see questions coming in for Annalise can you keep those coming in please because she'll be joining us in a couple of minutes somebody else says Patricia how do you, how can somebody find out any dentists that are available in, in County Cork are Kerry that covered the medical card <sighs> yeah I mean bar ringing up individual uh, dentists I don't know if there's a list or not what I would suggest you do is contact the HSE and see do they have a list Uh, all I will say to you is there are less and less dentists because the Irish Dental Association we've covered it here countless times on the programme uh, they have been in negotiation with the Department of Health because the contract they have for the medical cards is just so out of date and is just so not fit for purpose and the Irish Dental Association has been battling with the HSC to try to modernise that particular scheme and because of that a lot of dentists have opted out of medical cards where before they were always taking medical card patients many of them are, are not so I certainly have never seen a definitive list of who takes medical cards and, and who doesn't. I know when I was in my own dental practice, countless times that I've been in my own dental practice over the last couple of years, I've, heard, I've either seen somebody walk in in person to say, do you take medical cards? Or I've heard the receptionist on the phone asking, do you take medical cards, uh, patients patient? So I'd say the HSE is the best place to go because I don't know where in in County Cork or Kerry, even though I, I take from that text you are willing to travel and somebody, and, and that listener also wants to know how to make an appointment with Annalise well, you can call in She her shop is the Health Hub Times Square in Ballancolic. College she works in the shop so you'll be able to pop in in person if you want to have a natter uh, with her and I can see questions coming in for her thank you for that on cigarette smoking Patricia uh, not only should the age for buying cigarettes be increased from 18 to 21 as has been suggested but dare I suggest that this texture that they should also So increase the age of drink like they do in America. You've got to be 21 to drink in the States. Uh, This listener says, I've seen 18 and ten year olds falling around the pub at an 18th birthday party. The other problem with the 18th birthday party, you can be guaranteed not all of them are over 18 or have reached their 18th birthday. So this listener would say bring the age of drink up to 21 as well. And somebody else wants to agree with oh the listener who picked up on the Red Sea poll. That's out this morning showing the uh, amount 70% of 17 to 25 year olds who were surveyed for the Red Sea poll are considering emigrating. They just feel they don't have a future in this country. Uh, Patricia, as one of your previous texts has said, this government has completely abandoned the younger generation with historic rent and house prices and not tackling issues that are very important to them, such as climate change. Now they want to stop them from inheriting from their parents. Give me a break, please. So there's somebody who kind of understands why uh, young people might actually be thinking of uh, emigrating. But it was just so sad, so, so sad to see our brightest and our best and our youth uh, leaving us. 0818 103 103. And just a quick mention to something I spotted in the sports section of the Irish Examiner. You know, the Irish Examiner newspaper, they have that small little pullout on a Monday with all the sports stuff in it. And lo and behold, uh, inside in the first page two or page three, there is a piece about an investigation is underway in Kerry. After an under 11 hurling match, operating under the silent sidelines and no scorekeeping guidelines had to be abandoned by the referee in the first half because of unacceptable abuse from the sideline. And when I saw it, I said... That must be a misprint. It can't be an under-11 match. It was. It was an under-11 match. And it's Kerry GAA's Quish Nanogue. They are examining the referee's report from a game last Wednesday in Abbey Dorney between Abbey Dorney and Ballyduff. The official in question called a halt to proceedings little more than 10 minutes into an under-11 match. Match. No scores are kept at under 11 hurling matches in Kerry and they're played with what's called silent sidelines. Now, what's a silent sideline? That's where there's no shouting permitted, no remonstrating uh, from any of the mentors. They can't shout at any of the young people on the pitch. They can't shout at the referee. They can't shout at anybody else. The alleged offender, alleged, uh, in this instance, is believed to be a GAA official. Within North Kerry, people in attendance say that there was only one person in particular was remonstrating strongly with the referee from a very early stage of the game, and the official made the decision after little more than ten minutes to walk off the field and saying i 'm not having this anymore it 's understood then that a mentor from each side refereed the half to ensure that the game was played just for the sake of the children involved. Imagine the children are all excited about going to play their, their big match. The referees committee in Kerry have already met to coordinate its approach to abuse from the sidelines, which they argue shows little sign of abating. And according to the examiner this morning, there are also reports of a Kerry Barrett Cup, that's a junior football game, was also brought to a premature conclusion in the weekend due to abuse towards the the referee. It's just, is this not getting worse? If you can have a referee walking off the pitch from an under-11 hurling match when they have this silent sideline and no scorekeeping guidelines and you can still have somebody thinking it's okay to abuse uh, the ref, it just really is uh, shocking. 0818 103, 103. John Paul's taking your calls. In particular, we're looking for calls for Annalise. Please, you can text, you can WhatsApp to 0862 103 103. Court today on C103.
2: With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. This is the Court Today replay on C103.
3: Just before we go to uh, Annalise, just a couple of final comments in. Joe in Kilmallock, uh says, uh, should drink not be going up in price in the budget at the end of the day? It's a drink and it has consequences on society, says Joe in Kilmallock. They've left the old reliables of cigarettes and alcohol alone. Certainly alcohol has been left alone in the last number of budgets. Now the Vintners Federation will tell you uh, that they're already huge amount of excise duty on alcohol and they've already called for it to be reduced so I don't know who the, who's going to be listened to uh, but Joe reckons that's one way for the government to make uh, money and then on electricity with everybody talking about the cost of electricity etc John in Ballonhasic remembers rural electrification back in the 50s when the electricity arrived he said at night whenever you went to bed you turned off all of the lights you only had lights on in the rooms you were in all of the rooms were in uh, darkness John said even back then people were conserving electricity they're probably terrified of getting big bills in though John in the early days he says what's wrong today is we are not good at conserving uh, electricity we're going to have to get good at it for sure uh, coming into this winter. Okay Annelise Dressel of the Health Hub Times Square in Ballon joining me. Good afternoon to you Anneliese. Good afternoon Patricia. And you are very welcome let me get straight into a lot of questions in let's start with Nora. Um, hi um, Patricia could you please ask Annelise what you would recommend for hair loss my hair is falling out and thinning it's since the start of menopause now I did try HRT I was on it for six months but it really didn't improve the hair loss situation I've taken hair vitamins and I'm now taking something called Nordic Natural Amigo Oil I've been doing it for a month I haven't noticed any difference yet is there anything that Annalise would recommend for hair loss linked to menopause and this I take it is just another one of the symptoms of menopause is it?
9: It is Absolutely. And actually, Patricia, hormone imbalance in general can affect hair. A lot of women after pregnancy would notice their hair is bad quality or they lose a lot of hair. Um, So it is definitely linked to hormones for sure. Um, So I suppose generally I always think it's important to get to the root of the problem. But in this case, HRT didn't help. So I'd suggest something like Norcran It is a supplement specifically designed for thinning hair and not trying to improve the quality of hair. So it's some kind of patented marine protein. And I've taken it myself and I found it good and we do get good feedback on it in the shop as well for customers who try it. The only thing I would say is that it depends on how long ago your hair loss was. So if your hair was lost a couple of years ago, it's, it's not going to bring that hair back. It could help maintain the hair that you have and prevent it, the more of it from falling out. Um, but we've had people take it after cancer treatment. We have people take it after pregnancy, um, during stressful times, menopause, and it does give good results. So try it, N-O-U-R-K-R-I-N. You need to take it for about three months. So it's quite pricey, but if you buy a three-month supply, you'll often get one month for free. Um, and then after three months, if it's not working it's probably not going to work. Uh, so I think probably discontinue it at that
6: stage.
3: Okay, stay on menopause. high. I'm 57, menopause. I've noticed extra facial hair. This is the other side of uh, the coin. Now I just get rid of it like most other women, uh, but I've noticed it keeps coming back. Can Annalise suggest anything, maybe a vitamin, something to try to slow it down because it seems to be growing back much more faster?
9: Yeah, again, another Horrible thing to have to put up with, and again, that's a big one of hormone imbalance. So, you would often see this as well in people who've got polycystic ovary ovarian syndrome, where they have um, imbalance in hormones, particularly an overproduction of the androgen hormones, which are more the male hormones, testosterone and dihydroxy testosterone. And this is what's happening with menopause as well as your other hormone levels are falling. Um, You know, maybe testosterone is is now, you know, becoming out of balance and you're seeing that hair growth on the chin. Unfortunately, there's nothing you can take to get rid of hair growth. If you're dark-skinned, the best thing to do is get laser because that will destroy the root of the hair. If you're fair-skinned, it doesn't work, so you just have no option but to pluck it. And then in terms of taking things, you might want to try something like saw palmetto Um, But the truth of it is, Patricia, the best thing actually is to avoid sugar completely in your diet and simple carbohydrates because these sugars actually fuel the conversion of other hormones into testosterone in women. And that is one of the big things that we say for women with polycystic ovaries as well is to go on a completely no sugar diet. Um, If there's any insulin sensitivity, and I think this happens to women with menopause as well because we all start to put a little bit of weight on around the middle even if we weren't prone to do it before, I think taking things to improve your insulin sensitivity can help with that as well. So something like chromium, cinnamon is very good. Add it to your breakfast cereal in the morning. And there's a new... um supplement available now in Ireland it's been around for a while but we haven't had it it's called berberine b-e-r-b-e-r-i-n-e and it is as good as metformin in some studies for helping improve insulin sensitivity to your cells it's also a wonderful one for your liver and it's also a great natural antioxidant and supports a healthy bacteria in the gut so like all natural things it does more than one job so maybe try adding berberine to your diet Uh, to your supplements and go on a no sugar diet and if you don't get any further with that try the saw palmetto but my advice would be just get them lasered it's much faster
3: (laughs) okay is that painful?
9: Um, I don't think so, Patricia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, like I, I mean, I've had that those that hair growth as well. But I'm very fair blonde. Nasty, so you don't know so it doesn't so notice. Yeah, yeah, I think people would liken it to the sting of an elastic band. Oh, but it's not too okay. bad.
3: <laughs> All right, uh, Kieran says hi. Question for Annalise, uh, please. Where would be the best place to go for the most comprehensive and detailed blood allergy test?
9: Okay, and that is the million dollar question and that is how much it could actually end up costing you. So there's loads of different um, allergies that you can get tested for, not just foods. And actually, generally, if you're allergic to food, you'll have figured out more or less what it is it's more food intolerances that are difficult to to, to figure out so the um, food intolerance and food allergy tests are mostly done by private companies there is a company called Genova in the UK they do very comprehensive food intolerance and food allergy tests they also do um, inhalants so they would do um, moles and um, cats and dog hair horses they do all of that sort of thing pollens they'll check different kinds of pollens So you can have all of those tested as well. I do the food intolerance testing here because I find that that works very well, especially if your gut has been affected. But it's really hard to do it for a recent allergy if it's rash-based because, you know what, it could be anything. It could be anything in your environment, and it could be anything that you're eating. So generally, if you're eating something, you will experience some kind of digestive disorder, and I'd go down the road of a food intolerance test would be my advice.
3: Okay. Someone says, "Could uh, Annalise suggest anything for hives? Hives, please. They appear at any time and can last for a few days. So that's that's an allergy to something, isn't it?
9: Hives. It is generally, and actually, we're seeing quite a lot more of those kind of strange rashes and hives after COVID as well. So I don't know. COVID does seem to um, have some effect on that arm of the immune system that becomes overactive and more releases more histamine. So people are getting a lot more." strange rashes and things um i often would see hives as well patricia are strange rashes with people who've maybe changed their blood pressure medication so i would say yes it's definitely an allergy it's definitely a, too much histamine in the system if it's after coinciding with a recent change of blood pressure medication and it may not even be that you've changed to a different medication it actually might be that you've gone on to the generic form of one that you were on before And they say the generic is the same, but I've often seen people react to the generic one and they've had no problem with the original. Check your blood pressure medication. You can take things that will reduce histamine naturally in your system, like stinging nettle. Cercetin is a wonderful one. And actually, Cercetin would be a lovely one to take this time of the year because it's fantastic as well. uh, If you take it with zinc for helping fight COVID, you know, and prevent getting COVID and any kind of cough and cold or flu, really. So you could try that. Um, If it's very sporadic, it's going to be very hard to pin down what it is in reaction to. Um, So maybe just make sure, again, your personal hygiene products go for the natural ones with no chemicals added. Instead of using washing powder, um, use one of those eco eggs, which is like a plastic ball with mineral stones inside. That washes your clothes without any chemicals and do not absolutely under any circumstances use um, fabric conditioner because that just drives your skin crazy.
3: Oh, I didn't realise that. Hi, entities. I've, I've, I'm after getting blood tests done and I'm waiting on the results. The doctor is querying whether I have an underactive thyroid. I'm getting night sweats. I've got weight gain, but I'm extremely tired. I was putting it all down to menopause, but my doctor is checking for an underactive thyroid. Is there anything herbal I should be taking?
9: You can get supplements that support the thyroid. Um, And I do think, in actual fact, Patricia, my uh, sister-in-law was telling me that they use Irish milk in um, Germany for infant formula because it's naturally low in iodine. So I think our soil in Ireland and possibly our water supply is quite low. So taking a kelp supplement actually may be no harm because it's in the form of seaweed. I wouldn't overdose on it. Um, And it's in a nice, healthy form to be able to add to your diet with a combination of other minerals as well that will support the thyroid. So that will be the most basic. Uh, But you can get other thyroid supplements. Um, They would not be suitable for people with overactive thyroid. So make sure that it's not kind of flushing between the two, you know, that you're not going. Some people do start getting hyper and then hypo uh, when their thyroid is out of function. And there is no clinical evidence for this, but there is a kind of a, a lot of anecdotal evidence that links um, gluten intolerance um, with all of these kind of autoimmunes where the thyroid is actually being attacked by antibodies from the old, uh, from your own body. So I would see a lot of people improve very much when they take gluten out of their diet.
3: OK, and I say, wait and see from the doctor, because it may just be down to the menopause. It, it may, it may exactly. not be don't yeah. take anything until you they know, get the results unless, back yeah,
9: especially yeah.
3: when it comes to your thyroid yeah um, good luck with that hi uh, question for Annalise please a few of my fingers are very swollen particularly around the joints nearest the tips of my fingers I have a sort of a dull pain pins and needles throughout my fingers and the slightest pressure on my fingers is very uncomfortable I've had an, uh, an x-ray and I've been diagnosed and told it's arthritis is there anything I can be taken King, please or anyone I need to go and see. Thanking you, and that seems quite painful in your hands to have arthritis.
9: There, and actually, that would be for women again. I think a lot as well, Patricia, because we use our hands a lot um, in the kitchen, and and you know we do we do use our hands an awful lot, knitting as well, any of those kind of things. So it would be quite common to get it in the fingers. And I've often seen the tip of the fingers as well. I've a bit myself. So taking an arthritis supplement should help hugely with that. Um, We get great feedback on the following ones. So there's the GAL UC2 cartilage. Um, is a great one. That comes in capsule form. You just take one a day on an empty stomach. Salgar 7 is a lovely one as well. That's a combination of that type of cartilage, but also there's some natural anti-inflammatory in there. So that can work very well at the beginning, especially if the fingers are very swollen and inflamed. Um, Some people swear, Patricia, by copper bracelets. So that certainly would be no harm to try. You can buy those in health stores. Um, Actually, I think even pharmacies would probably have those copper bracelets. But really, it's about prevention with arthritis. Um, So making sure that you take something from the moment you start to kind of get stiff really halts the progression of it and helps to maintain that And then, when they're very red and swollen, it sounds like there's a bit of inflammation. So, maybe adding something like turmeric just for the first couple of months would work as well, just to bring down that that heat and that pain in those knuckles.
3: Okay. Hi, uh, Patricia. Uh, question for Annalise. I'm taking Revive Active and Cetrine C- C- Allergy. For long COVID, I'm also taking Eskimo oil for arthritis and I'm on ginger, turmeric and bromelain for pain. Can I also now take olive leaf extract for phlegm and a bit of a cough that I'm trying to shake off? Are they too many things altogether? Um, Well, there's
9: a lot there, I suppose. But I mean, again, with long COVID, unfortunately, we have seen with our own customers that there is no other way around it except to take quite a lot of stuff. Um, so in this case here, absolutely safe to take the olive leaf extract. It's a great natural antiviral, so it's one that we recommend a lot. But I th- And that's general antiviral immune booster. But I think if you've got something like that coming on, a cough, I think that taking something more specifically for the respiratory system might work better. So um, the doctor dealer's Claire Mucotone, you know it well yourself, Patricia. Yeah. It's disgusting, but very, very effective. If you can't get your hands on that, Uh, You could try maybe um, the Irish Botanica Echinacea is a great one for immune boosting and they do a, um, a kind of a herbal blend as well. I think it's called a throat coat is one that they do maybe that combination if you can't get um, your hands on the doctor care one but the doctor care really is its beyond it's beyond anything else I've ever had in the shop it just works so
3: well Listen mine of information as always we'll talk next Monday have a lovely week Patricia. Thanks a million that is Annalise Giselle Health Hub Times Square in Balancolic this afternoon Annalise on her website we'll put up all of the information all of the products we discussed uh, today and you can find her on healthhubstore.com as heard on the radio I've got to leave you until tomorrow I'm Patricia Messinger a very
2: good afternoon more today on C103
3: with Corrigan Insurance's McCroom. Now
4: part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Want great advice? You know who to talk to. See
0: A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot bot, maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip?